We're looking at a, a, a theme of um, incarnating Christ through the year and we want to focus on what incarnating Christ is all about in our lives. We want to talk to you today and in the next coming weeks about how it is to put Jesus on and to be like Jesus so that other people, when they look at you, they see Jesus in you and they say, there's something about you that's different and, and, they, and they know that their difference is the, the Christ living within you, manifesting himself through your life. So that's what we're trying to do. And we're talking particularly in, the next, in, this, in this last series on the staying power of Jesus. That is the ability of Jesus to, to come and to do what he needed to do and to stay with it and not to quit. Um, and we want to learn how it is to be like Jesus in terms of his staying power. Today we're going to be looking at the word dependability versus inconsistency. Now that two interesting words. Who doesn't know what those words mean? Put your hand up. That's okay. You'd be surprised how much you don't know about the English language when you actually start to read. You think of dependability and you go and look up the, 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 uh, the meaning of the word and you find that your meaning, what you thought was the meaning, was completely different to what the meaning really is because language is a bit like that. It, it moves. So dependability is... It's kind of like faithfulness. Everybody say faithfulness. A person who is faithful is usually fairly dependable. That means you can depend on them. You can, you can look at them and say, you know, um, can you pick me up at 7 o'clock tomorrow? And, you know, at 5 to 7, they'll arrive and they're ready to pick you up. It's like you can trust what they say. They're dependable. So dependability is the ability to be faithful, the ability to be steadfast, the ability to be loyal, the ability to, to be there when you've said you're going to be there. Your word is your bond. When you say something, you mean it and you say it and you do it. Now, Jesus, God is always faithful. He's faithful because he is faithful. Faithfulness is not something that he has to you know, work hard to do. It just comes out of him because he is faithful. God is faithful. And the Bible speaks of this type of faithfulness as being the attribute of God, as God is, that's his essence. You know, God is love, God is faithful, God is uh, holy. They are attributes of God. And so his faithfulness is his attribute. It also talks about uh, faithfulness as being a characteristic of men and women who are like God in that regard. They are dependable. It also talks about faithfulness in the Bible as being a quality that's sadly lacking in many lives. You know, when you put your weight on somebody or you want to trust that somebody's going to do something and they, they, they said that they were going to do something, they said they were going to come and get you and they never, they never fronted, they never came. And that was like, okay, we've got a problem here. You know, we, I can't trust what the person says. That's the lack of faithfulness. And that faithfulness is given to us as a gift because when the Holy Spirit is given to us, Part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is faithfulness. So when the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, the gift of that person to our lives is the ability to ex express through our lives faithfulness, like God's faithfulness, because it's his fruit, his character. Inconsistency is that breaking of promise. Jesus was dependable and faithful and consistent in everything he did. And so we know that when he said he was going to do something, he did it. God said he was going to send Jesus. God said he was going to send, a, and it seemed impossible, send a, a, a child through the birth of a, a child through a, a virgin's womb, which just seems like an impossible thing, but God did it. Whatever God says that he will do, he does. 
He's faithful. If he said that if you do this bad thing, then I'm going to send you into, uh, into, into uh, bondage and captivity, he does it if you do the wrong thing. If he says he's going to bless you, he does it. Whatever he says he's going to do, God does it. He's faithful in that regard. I mean, when um, Solomon was, was giving, a, a, I suppose it was a, a huge party because the, the temple had been built, he said, one of the things he said, all of God's uh, promises, all the things that uh, God had promised to do, not one thing had failed. So that was his, his anthem, as it were, of God. God was completely faithful. He did everything that he said he was going to do. If God doesn't do everything he says he's going to do, then he's not God. It's as simple as that, because God is faithful. And so we can look forward to having faithfulness in our lives by a relationship with the Holy Spirit who God has given us. So here we have a little bit of a diagram that I want you to look at. It's going to be coming over and over again as we, as we go through this sermon today. And in this, we've got this idea in the center of God is his faith, he's faithful. That's, his, that's who he is. He is faithful and because he not only believes that you should be faithful, he is faithful out of that character comes the reason why he does certain things. So why does God do certain things? Well, he does those things because he is faithful. It's his motivation to be consistent with his own character. He can't be inconsistent with his character. And so everything he does, how he works, the things that he does, what he does, it always is consistent with the core of him, his faithfulness. And so he keeps his promises because... That's what he said he would do. So I want you to keep that picture in your mind. We're going, to, we're going to have a look at that. So who he is, is the core of faithfulness or where it comes from. Now, if we want to make Jesus come to life in our lives, then there's a little thing that we have to do. We have to recognize that who God is and who I am have to be consistent. If I can get my life to look a little bit more like Jesus on the inside, if I believe what God believes on the inside, if I take God's word and I make God's word my word and that's on the inside, then it's not inconceivable that the reason why God does things will be the reason why I I would do things. Why? Because it's coming from my heart and my heart's like his heart. If my heart is like his heart, then I will do what he would do. I mean, if he hates sin, I would hate sin. If he loves being careful and kind to people, I would love being careful and kind to people. All of those things would come out of who I am because I am like he is. Can you see the connection? And then how and what I do would be just like what Jesus would do. So that's how we start to incarnate Christ in our lives. We've got to get the core of us similar to the core of what's in God. If the core of us is like what's in God, then you'll see that there's a replication of our motivation so that our motivation is the same as what God's motivation would be. You might not be able to sit there and, and, and look in a, in, a, in a shopping centre and see many, many people just walking by you and, and, and realise that they are all going to a, a Christless, godless eternity and sit there feel comfortable about that. And the reason you won't be able to feel comfortable about that is because maybe God can't sit there comfortably and look at people going to hell. He feels he's got to do something about it as well. 
If the core of you is the same as the core of God, then the motivation of your life will be the same as the, His motivation. And then the things that you do and, the thing, and why you do the things you do will be the same as the reason why He does the things. So if we want to incarnate Christ, the core of us has got to change. In the center of us, we've got to become more like Him. So God's word then becomes the core of our lives. And my submission to his word becomes the motivation of my life. And then my behavior reflects God's revelation in my life. So the reason I do what I do and the reason I do why I do the things I do is all because the word of God has taken up residence within my life. And his, his presence in my life is producing a change in my reasoning, a change in my motivation, and a change in my behavior. You get that? We're going to try and follow that through, okay? Now, Jesus actually shows us this in his life. And I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 10. He says, and this is Jesus talking about himself. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. So he's saying, God, you're not really impressed with bulls being offered and sheep being sacrificed and doves being killed. That's not impressing you, God. Jesus was aware of the heart of God. God was not happy about and pleased with animal sacrifice. He got that. He says, but a body you have prepared for me. So he he figured, you know, you, you put me here in this place for a reason, and I'm in this body for a reason, says Jesus. In burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, you had no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I come. And then he says, in the volume of the book, it is written of me, which is very telling. He says, behold, I come to do your will, O God. So in the midst of saying, behold, I come to do your will, he says, I got some indication of what your will was and it was written for me in a volume, the scroll. So what we get from that is we get an understanding that Jesus understood that his identity and his person was dictated to him in a scroll. And so as he got older and he started to read, he's on his mother's womb, uh, in his mother's womb, and he came out, sat on his mother's knee, and then he discerned between good and evil and chose good, not evil. And he, then he started to learn and he started to read and he started to read the scrolls. He started to read the volume of the Word of God. He began to see in the volume of the Word of God himself. He could read all about himself. He read, read about the virgin woman giving birth to a son called Emmanuel, and he recognized that was, wow, that's me. He's talking about me. He could read Isaiah, and he could read about what he would do in his life. He could read about how God would speak to him in Isaiah 50. Morning by morning, he wakens by ear. That's what happens to me. Every morning, I get woken up and God's talking to me. He's given me stuff to sustain the weary. He could understand what was happening in his life because he could go to the scroll and he could read himself in the book. That's why he says it. In the volume of the book, it's written of me. So he could find his identity. He could find his personage. He could find his thoughts. He could find who he really was in the book. That must have been incredibly telling. I mean, imagine that, picking up the Bible and starting to read the Bible and starting to recognize that he was talking about you specifically. 
that as you were reading through the words that you were reading, you know that it was telling you what you would do and how you would die and how, how they would cut, you know, um, um, cast lots for your clothes. And, and, and all that information was there in the book. Imagine sitting there. That would make reading a bit interesting. I bet every one of you would pick up the Word of God every day and read it, copiously read it every day because you're reading about yourself. Think about that. The addiction that you'd have for what's happening in my life next. Oh, oh, that's horrible. Oh, 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 that doesn't happen. Imagine that if you were reading through the scroll and every word that you read, you knew it was Father God speaking to you and telling you about your life, who you are, what your thoughts are, what you're really, what's going to happen to you in the future, how it's going to work out for you. Imagine that. Whoa. Would you, put your hand up if you would think if, if you, that was the case, you'd read the Bible a lot lot more than you're reading it now. Put your hand up high. If you thought that you could find yourself in the pages of the Word of God, you would read it more. Well, that was Jesus. No wonder he had a desire for the Word of God and he had that mind that could remember. He, I mean, I would remember it if I was reading it and said they were going to nail my hands and feet and they were going to shove a spear into my side. I mean, I would, I, I, the, my back would be like a plowed field. I'd be looking at that and I'm thinking, wow, oh, it's really, it's full on, eh? This is what God has got for me. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. He had that. He had that. There it was. He could read about himself. He says, and I've come to do your will, O God. And previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offering for sin you did not desire, nor had you pleasure in them which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. So here's that submission of heart. Jesus says, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. He says, Okay, I'm taking away animal sacrifices. You gave me a body to sacrifice. I'm going to swap the animal sacrifices for my life and my sacrifice. And that was what Jesus read about himself. And we're told in verse 10, and by that will, which is the will that Jesus had to submit himself to the Father's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So how does it fit on our little diagram? It goes something like this. God's revelation in the volume of the book is written about me was the core of Jesus' heart and life. Uh, look, I, I don't want you to to think that reading the Bible and talking to God is somehow separate. And so we sit here, black words on white pages, you know, read the Bible. No, no. Jesus didn't read it like that. He would read the Bible and he would be prayerfully talking to the Spirit of God as he's reading. He would be communing with God as he's reading about it in his book. He'd be talking and, and as he's reading pages, he'd be saying, this is God's word to me. This is God, Father God speaking to me. Occasionally God might speak from a loud voice, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And everybody goes, wow, well, it must have thundered. And like, yeah, yeah, okay, God, yeah, that's okay. But he had this relationship, this dynamic relationship where he heard Father God speaking to him and he was submitting to Father God continuously. So the revelation of God's word was within him it became part of the core of his life. 
And from that, his whole motivation for life flowed out. So why did Jesus do what he did? He did it because he submitted himself to the Father's will. I'm going to do the Father's will. I know what the Father's will is. That's the core of me. I am going to submit myself to obey that. So that's why he was consistent. That's why he could do everything. That's why he was reliable. Because the core of him was focused in on what God wanted him to do. And he was submitted to it. And his obedient life, the body you had, he had been prepared for him to offer as a sacrifice, was something that he would offer as a sacrifice because everything flowed together. If you want to incarnate Jesus, you have to do the same as Jesus. You have to have the same core driving on the inside. The revelation of God must be the core of your life. And out of that must be your motivation to submit to it, to follow it, and then to do what Jesus wants you to do. We know that when he was about 12 years old, it had all come together for Jesus. There are are many quiet years that we don't know what happened to Jesus. The Bible doesn't tell us everything that Jesus did. We get a few glimpses of him when he's a child, and then he's traveling with his parents, you know, away to Egypt and different places. And then we get a snippet of them coming back into into Jerusalem uh, for this this, uh, feast at this time when he was 12. His family comes in here. He goes to the temple, which is what's their custom. And he sits down in the temple. And because he reads about himself in the scroll and he knows who he is, he's in his father's house talking to the scribes and the Pharisees about his father's business. His family moves away and goes to leave. And he stays there. He lingers back and stays there because he's captivated by what these guys are talking about. He's captivated because it's real to him because he knows who he is. After three days, they travel back to find him and find him in the temple, talking with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and whoever else was in there. And they say, why have you done this? He says these words. He says, why did you seek me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? He said, you should have known that. Don't you know who I am? It's written to me in the scroll. You know my origins, mum. Which guy did you have sex with to give birth to me? None. Well, you know where I came from. What did you expect me to be doing? His core, the core of his identity was born out of the fact that he had this revelation of God. Who he was, he was God's son and God was his father. He was the only begotten of God and he had come for a task. Everything in his life was consistent. He said, why? He says, why are you looking for me? I am doing something consistent with who I am and with whose I am. I mean, it shouldn't have shocked them. He didn't do anything bad, but it shouldn't have shocked them. They should have, where, where would he be? They should have said, let's, let's think, where would he be? Uh, well, let's go to the temple. That's where he would be. That would be consistent. He would be with, in his father's house, talking to his father. That's where he'd be. So Jesus' motivation, we read in, in John, was always to please the Father. In John chapter 4, verses 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So he really had it in his mind. Now, I know what I've got to do. I know what this is about. And I know where this is going. I know what I have to do. He would tell his disciples, they're going to kill me. And on the third day, I'm going to rise rise again. And his disciples would have just 
You know how when you talk to a kid and you say to a child, please put the rubbish in the rubbish bins here, don't put the rubbish bins in the rubbish over here, put it here in this rubbish bin, and you know that while you've been talking to the child and saying, put the rubbish in the rubbish bin here, they're going, and they nod as though they understand, and then when they go, they put the rubbish bin over in the rubbish over this one, not on over here. And you say, well, how did that happen? It was because when you were talking to them, they weren't engaging with you. They didn't even hear what you were saying. Your lips were moving, but their ears were not picking it up. But Jesus didn't have that. When God spoke, Jesus was attentive. Everything that the Father spoke, he, he got it. He knew what the will of God was for his life. He knew it from a very early age. He knew exactly what he had to do. And everything as it went along, he did what he had to do until his time came. And when the fullness of time came, he was ready to move. He was right in there, ready to move. I've come to do my father's job. He says, I can do nothing of myself. He says, as I speak, I, I judge and my, my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. See, he understands whose he is and who he is. Turn to your neighbor, poke them in the arm and say, do you know whose you are? Did you get that? Then... Neighbor, punch them back the other way. Don't punch, just touch. Say, do you know who you are? Yeah, that's the, I mean, that's really the real two basic questions here for your life is whose are you and who are you? Whose are you and who are you? Jesus knew whose he was and he knew who he was. I mean, it's easy to live consistently in life and be faithful in life and dependable in life if you know what you're meant to be doing and why you're meant to be doing it. Who you are and whose you are. You will act consistently. If you don't know who you are, you don't know where you're going, you don't know what you're on about, you're going to act all over the shop. You know, I don't know whether I want to... If you're a mother and you have children, you know that you're a mother and you have children. And if you're a mother and you have children, you don't have to look after your children, you know. You don't run off and be like a single girl, do you? You don't run away and go down the beach and, and, and you've got a baby in the car and leave her sitting in the car all day in the sun. You don't, think, you don't do that, do you? Why? Because you remember who you are and whose you are. And your children belong to you and, and you'll get put in jail if you, if you put a child in a, in a car seat and leave them locked up in a hot car. You just don't do that, do you? You just don't forget things like that. Jesus didn't forget who he was and whose he was. So I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So you can see very clearly that he knew exactly what he was about. So the big question for our lives, and I want you to look at me now. The big question for your life is, what do you believe? About yourself. Now, I'm not talking about some mental ascent here. Just like, oh, I believe in God. You know, uh, hundreds of people believe in God, but by their lives, you can see that they really don't. I mean, if you believed in God, and we use the word believe as in a full strength of the understanding, that belief so permeates your being so that it controls every thought and every action of your life. If you truly believe something, it will change the way you do things. If you truly believe that you had one week left to live and the doctor said to you, yes, you've got one week left to live, you've got one seven days, 
what would you do differently? If you believed that, that was the case, and you knew that was, like, I mean, so you, they were going to take you out and shoot you because, you know, they could terminate you like that. You know? And you only had seven days left before you were going to execute you, and you can do whatever you like. What would you do? You would, I, I know what you would do. You would start to live it up like you wouldn't believe. And the reason why you would live it up, and, and probably some of you might get down and pray a lot, and say, oh God, is it really seven days? Is that all? Some of you might go out and start witnessing like you had never witnessed before and telling people about Jesus like you never told Jesus. And I'd say, well, why did you start now? You've got seven days. Why didn't you start at the beginning? And had, oh, Anyway, we won't go there. If you really believe something, it's going to affect the way you live. It's going to affect what you do. What you believe produces... The strength in your life. Romans chapter 10 verse 17, we read these words. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now this faith is this word pistis in the Greek. It's the word faithful in the Greek. It's also the word means steadfast or steadfast or dependable in the Greek. So that comes from the word of God. And it's just like it is. It's the word of God is in the center of our lives. It's the core motivation of our life. It's the way we think. It's the way we have chosen to think. It's the way we've adopted. We believe God's word is true. Therefore, that word permeates through our life and becomes part of our motivations. So my understanding of God's word produces submission in my life. I believe that God's men should be holy. Amen? So I live holy. I make choices that are holy choices. I believe God's men should be loving. So I live in a loving manner because I believe that's what God wants. It's what I believe that comes out of my life. My motivation is a reflection of what I core, what's core in my, my, my belief system. And I'm dependable or somebody is dependable, steadfast and faithful if their belief is that they ought, should, must be that way. Do you get that? Abraham shows us that. Abraham received a revelation from God's Spirit about who he was and whose he was in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And we, we read in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 and 3, we read these. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. So now he's having an encounter with God. It must have been awesome, this encounter. He was living in the year of Chaldees, and he was living, and he's quite happy with his family and stuff, and God breaks into his life. Bang! Comes into his life and says, Go, leave your father's house, leave everything, and go to land I'm telling you to do. Now, well, that's okay. It wasn't something that sort of got to you on Sunday morning, like, you know, wake up in the morning and just a yawn, and go to your father's house. and marry Is that God or is that me? No, no, no. Whatever this encounter was that Abraham had with God, was so strong that it became the core of Abraham's motivation. God's revelation to him, him became the core of the reason why he did everything from that time on. He immediately got up and he started to leave and pack up everything to go somewhere else. Why? Because he had encountered a voice from God and that was, as far as he was concerned, that was God. God speaking to me. God wants me to change. God wants me to do something. And his motivation then was submission to that. That's God. You don't argue with God. Just get on and do what God wants you to do. That was his core motivation. What did God tell him he was going to do? 
I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, then, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Wow! I like that, he says. I like that idea. And it wasn't just a silly little idea that bummed around in his head, bumped around in his head while he's thinking about whether he should have cheese for breakfast or something. It's an idea that changed the whole of his life, to change the course of him. It was his core revelation. Faith came in because God spoke to him. He knew it was God and his whole life changed from that time on. We're told that he had to wait some time and probably can't read it because it's all small words. But anyway, it says, as it was written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who, whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, this is Abraham, in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's room, room she'd, she'd gone through menopause. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And so here we have this man, this word that he got spoken to, by it was something that so gelled with him, it didn't matter that he had to wait 25 years and travel at 75 till 100 and just not have any children and look through every part of that disappointment. You know, you think about it. God speaks to you. You're going to be great. And you, you, you start wandering into this wilderness to go to a place which you, which you don't know that he's just going to show you and you can't have kids you're meant to be the father of a nation many big nations are blessing to everybody and you just cannot have kids it's meant to be going a son is meant to be born to you and you just it must have been an incredible frustration and you you would begin to doubt the very core of the revelation but he did not doubt the core of the revelation because he had a relationship with the one who gave the revelation that is god and he believed God was able, even if his body was dead, was able to fulfill the promise because he believed in God's steadfastness. He believed in God's faithfulness. He believed that God was able to do it. And he just kept on going and kept on going. And when his hope ran out, in spite of hope running out, he kept on believing because he said God can speak death into life. And God gave him a son. That's the core of your motivation. So what we have is something, it's like this. God's word is at the core of us. Do you believe it? Do you believe it or you just sort of pick it up and play with it like it's something, oh yeah, I wonder. But he said, I will heal you. Do you believe he's going to heal you? Do you believe it? Is it in the core? Or you say, oh well, you know, maybe, maybe not. Or is it born of, bless the Lord, all my soul and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord and forget not his benefits, who heals my body and who forgives my sins. What are you, what are you believing? What's the core of you? When everything looks grim, what's the core of you saying? Where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself in your own mind with your own thoughts or do you find yourself in the Word of God and find yourself in the revelation of God's Word to your spirit, to who you are and whose you are? That's the question. You want to be steadfast. 
He who is steadfast to the end, will, he who overcomes to the end will be saved. You want to have dependability. You want to have faithfulness. You want to have steadfastness in your life because it will give you overcoming power. You don't want to be tossing to and fro in these difficult days. Abraham had the word of God in his heart. His whole understanding of God's word and revelation to him produced a submission in his life. It was difficult for him and he had to wait a long time, but he submitted himself to the word of God and he journeyed out. He became dependable, steadfast and faithful in his behaviour and became the father of the faithful because he believed the one who's told him to go. Here are some beautiful psalms. Psalm 119 has got some beautiful words in it. Psalm 119 verse 130, the entrance of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. I want to say something to you. This is just not poetry. You You have an incredible choice here with regard to God's word. If the word of God is true and the entrance of God's words give light, it gives understanding to the simple. I want to ask you, do you know everything about everything? Do you know everything about everything? So that you don't have to go to the word of God to find out about anything. You say, oh no, then you are simple. Be honest now, you don't know everything, you are simple. Do you know all there is to know about healing, Phil? Do you know all there is to know about evangelism? Do you know all there is to know about holy living? Do you know all there is to know about generosity of spirit? Do you know all there is to know about holiness of life? Do you know all there is to know? No, you don't. You are simple. The entrance of his word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So where would you go to get some more information on the stuff that you need to know about? You would go to the word of God and it would give you light on the inside. And from the light on the inside, your motivation will be changed. Your life will be changed and it will begin to ooze out of your character and your behaviour. But if you don't think you're simple, if you think you know all things, that's probably why you don't go to the Word of God to get the end story. You probably think you got it all sorted, you can rationally think it all through. Listen, friends, you can't rationally think all the stuff that's coming through. Get to the Word of God and get some light on it and let the light so change your motivation. The word I have in my heart that I might not sin against, you know. We, oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm so good. You, you're, you're so loving and kind to me. Oh, you're so merciful. You're so gracious. I sin that grace shall abound. He said, you don't need to do that. You need to get into the word of God and the word of God needs to become your sole motivation for life. He says, and you will not sin against me. Oh. Well, I'd rather watch a movie for three hours than read the Bible for five minutes. It's a problem, you see. The problem is this. A world that is godless has become the core of your motivation rather than the Word of God, which is full of wisdom. So your motivation for doing things now is being affected by the world because the world is the centre of your life. 
Worldliness is the thing that's grasped you. It's held you and motivation stay out of your life. Not come for prayer or for study of a word or for evangelism. The motivations of your life come for worldly things, things of this world. And that's because your belief is in the world and not in the word. Well, if you get into the word of God more, you become worldless, less world. And if you become worldless, people look at you and say, you're a bit over the top, aren't you? Yes, I'm incarnating Jesus now. I'm looking a bit strange to you, I know, and I don't think that, I would, that you will understand what I'm about and where I'm about because the core of me is driven by something that's given to do to you. If you want the things that, if you love the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in you. The core love is different. Your motivation will be different and the outcome will be different. What's in the core of you? What are you really believing? You can tell me with your lips, but stop. I can watch it with your lifestyle. You can say with your lips, I believe in God, I love Jesus, but I'm stop, stop now, stop talking. I'm watching your behaviour because what you truly believe comes out of your action. Psalm 109 verse 50 says, This is my comfort in my affliction. Your word has given me life. <laughs> oh, we go. How many people last week in their afflicted times? I said, How many people had a shocking week last week? You saw some hands go up. How many of you, and I don't want you to raise your hand, went to the word of God to find comfort in your affliction? So that when you're going through this terrible time and, and it, you can't understand what's happening and it's difficult for you, rather than chase up somebody on the phone, oh, this is, yeah, it's a terrible life. Oh, and it's all about everybody else and what they're doing for you, and you poor little person, you. But where, did you go to the Word of God and did you get into the Word of God and did you find comfort for your affliction in the Word of God? This is it. This is it. Do you, do you believe that God's word is there and it's a balm for your soul? Do you believe that God's word is there? It's got light for the simple. Do you believe that God's word is there and is there for you to get strengthened on the inner man? Do you believe that it's there? Is this provision for you so that you can read it on a daily basis and be strong on the inside? Do you really believe that? Well, in the time of affliction, did you go to the Word and find strength in the Word of God? Did you find comfort in the Word of God at the time of affliction? Because what you do comes from what you feel about what you should be doing, your motivation, and that points to what you believe about the Word of God. If you ran somewhere else rather than God's Word, it tells me something. It tells me that you believe that you wouldn't find something in the Word of God. And if you're ruthlessly honest with yourself, listen to me, look at me now. If you're ruthlessly honest with yourself, you can tell me what you believe by looking at your behaviour. If you're ruthlessly honest with yourself, you can say, you know what, Ma, I don't believe that the Word of God is full for me because I don't go to the Word of God that often. I go other places. 
Your behaviour comes from your motivation. Your motivation is premised upon what you believe. If you didn't go to the Word of God to find strength, you don't believe that there's strength in the Word of God for you. I don't care what you say. Turn to your neighbour and say, it doesn't matter what you say. It's what you do. It's what you do. It's what you do. In Psalm 119, verse 148, my eyes are awake through the night watches, <laughs> the psalmist says, that I may meditate on your word. <laughs> the only reason I wake up in the middle of the night is so that I can think about your word, God. <laughs> I'm awake again. Oh. <laughs> Why did he believe that he woke up? Morning by morning, said Jesus, he wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. He gives me strength to sustain the weary. He gives me words to sustain the weary. He, he gives me a face so I can harden my face like the flint. Isaiah 50. The psalmist believes that he wakes in the middle of the night so that he has opportunity to draw more from God. Great peace have those that love thy law and nothing causes them to stumble. Great peace have they that love thy law and nothing causes them to stumble. If the word of God is that strong and that powerful and you're spending time, there's nothing in your life that is going to make you trip up. It's got the power to keep you stable and strong and secure. Nothing will cause you to stumble. Well, I'd be okay, but... you. I went to that church and he snobbed me. Snobbed me. Oh, talking about me. I got accused of that a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember when I did that. Probably I didn't even notice the person. But I'm not coming back to the church again because he snubbed me. Why, he should eat out of my hand every time I go to church. He should be sitting down and he should be kissing my feet every time I walk into church. In fact, he should be so captivated by me, he's having problems with him and his wife and me. You know, that's, I think to myself, are you so stupid? Are you so stupid to think that just because your pastor didn't see you one time that you're going to go away? You're offended now. Obviously, you don't love the Word of God, hey? Because if you love the Word of God, nothing would cause you to stumble. I can't do anything about it. I'm not here to please you. I'm here to please Jesus. That's my core motivation. Just turn to your neighbour and say, he doesn't want to please me. You got it. You got it. You got it. I'm not here to please you. I'm here to, to please Jesus. And if you're pleased with what pleases Jesus, you'll be pleased. But if you're not pleased with what pleases Jesus, you're going to get offended. And that's okay. I'm not in for building an empire. Friends, one day we will stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. One day we will stand before the incarnate Word of God and we'll give an account for our lives. You better be motivated like He's motivated if you want to stand on that day. So God's Word is at the core of us. 
My understanding of God's word is important, and my submission to it is what it is driving the dependability and the steadfastness and the faithful behavior from my life. It all comes from the word of God. So what do you believe about whose you are and whose you are? Do you believe that God is your father and you are his child? Put your hand up if you believe that God is your heavenly father and you're his child. It's a problem. So this is what he says to his children. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, we get this. If you then are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So he's saying, get your focus on the right thing. Okay, you're God's children. He's your daddy. So don't get caught up with what's happening here in this world. Who cares whether Liberal got in or Labor got in? Frankly, I don't care. The issue is, is Jesus still the king of your life? Irrespective of who's the government. Is Jesus still the provider? Not the Labor Party or not the Liberal Party. Is Jesus still your provider? Is he still the one that you're coming to? Is he the one who's calling you out to himself? Seek him. Keep seeking him. Keep searching after him. Keep, keep looking for him. He says, if you want to find out your identity, it's hidden in him. If you don't look in him, you won't find out who you are. You'll look everywhere else and you won't have any core belief about who you are if you don't go to him and find out who you are. Your whole identity as a person is wrapped up in you getting to and understanding and finding out what's written in the book about you. What's in the volume of the book about you? You're his child. He's written about you in the book. Have you discovered you in the book? Did you discover what he said about you in the book? Do you discover what he, he wants you to do in the book? It's written about you in the book. Do you read it as though you're reading about you in the book? Or is it just a chore, just so you, you read your psalm this day, so you can fill your Bible, tick your list and read the Bible in a year? I'm not interested in if you're reading the Bible in a year. If you're not talking to Jesus in the process, you're missing the point. It's not how many pages you read, it's the communion of heart with the Word. That's what the issue is. In 1 John we're told, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. Whoa, we are God's children. Yippee! There's a, there's a day coming when you stand before him, that will be the greatest thing that you'll ever have captivated in your mind, the fact that he actually bestowed upon you adoption to bring you into his family. That'll make you do cartwheels before the throne of God. That one reality, you are a child of God, chosen from the pit chosen out of, the, out of the death of dung and pulled up and raised up to be his child whereby you can call him Abba Father. 
If that doesn't mean anything, if you don't get excited, do somersaults there. You want to sit down in the Word of God and you want to get the Word of God into you so that permeates your whole life and you recognize He is committed to you like a father's committed to his child. And He's way better than your earthly dad. He is way better. He's Holy Father and He's committed to you like a dad is committed to his child. That ought to make you do cartwheels. Yes. Yes. I believe it. When I get in a hard place and I don't go crying to my daddy, daddy, will you fix it up for me? My earthly daddy can't fix it up for me. I call out to my heavenly father, Father God, I'm your son. Do what you will. I'm your son. You are my portion. You're all I got. That's it. That's the bottom line. That ought to make you do cartwheels. No, no, that God in His love has committed Himself to walk with you, to provide for you, to look after you, and to take all your crying and tears away. All your fears will be consumed with that one reality. Heavenly Father has committed Himself to be your daddy, to walk with you, to talk with you, to guide you and to leave you and to keep you from evil and to sanctify you and set you apart and put you beside Him in His kingdom. Hallelujah for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. So how does it look in our diagram? It's quite simple. God's revelation, you're His child. This is continuous seeking after him. That's the motivation of your life. You want to get to know dad better. You want to get to know him better. You want, you want, to, you want to please him. And then at the end, in our behavior, we'll be like him. But steadfastness, faithfulness, always comes with a test. You never ever get steadfast and faithfulness without the test. It's always a test. I, I think about the first time that, well, I suppose, but the first time that Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus really saw Jesus test them with regard to time. Lazarus gets sick. Not good. It's not good. He's, he's really sick. We wish that Jesus were here right now, because if Jesus was here right now, he'd fix it, Lazarus. Jesus might be coming, Lazarus, just hang on there, hang on, don't go to sleep, Lazarus, whatever you do, don't go to sleep. Jesus might be on the way. Jesus is aware of what's happening someplace else. They had been there and they had tried to kill him. He'd gone away from that place because they had tried to kill him. So he was not there where they were because they had tried to kill him where they were. So he's gone away and he says to his disciples, Lazarus is sick. Well, well, okay, you know something, Jesus, you got insight, hey? Yeah, Lazarus is sick. And he doesn't go there, he just hangs back. He should have gone straight away, hey? I mean, he's loved, he, he loved the girls, he loved Lazarus. Why did he go straight away? He hung back. He hung back, kept on hanging back. Then Jesus says, Lazarus has gone to sleep. Well, there's a figurative way of saying Lazarus just died. And they said, oh, well, that, you know, if he's asleep, he'll get better. No, no, he's dead. Let's go. Well, and then they remind him. Remember, they actually killed you. Well, they're trying to stone you there last time. 
Thomas, the great man of faith, says, well, let's just go with him and die with him. So he comes to the place where Lazarus is dead, now he's been dead for four days, and he sits there outside the city. Not inside, he doesn't go to them, he sits outside the city. Well, how would you interpret that? Would you think maybe he's a bit scared because if he goes into the city, they'll see him and they'll stone him? Maybe he's a bit weary. You know, why did, why did he slow down? Why didn't he go straight away? Maybe he's a bit scared. Hey, Maybe Jesus is a bit scared. He doesn't want to go in there. There's a whole lot of those things. Maybe Jesus can't do something about this one. Maybe he isn't the answer. So Martha hears he's on the brinks of the city. So Martha goes running to him and says, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Even now, he says, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Your brother Lazarus will live. In the resurrection that's coming in the future, yeah, we know, because he's got no power now. He's dead. He's been dead for four days. I can smell him. He's rotting in there. The divine delay produced within the people dismay, disillusionment. They sat back and they didn't believe anymore because of the divine delay. But Jesus came fully aware that he was going to bring glory to God because he said, Lazarus is sick and I'm going to wait and I'm going to bring glory to God. He goes there and said, pull him out. Well, they don't want to pull him out. He stinks. They're resistant and Jesus says, Jesus wept. I want to tell you, and they thought that it was weeping because Lazarus died. <laughs> he loved him so much and he's missing him there. No. He is actually despairing because of the people's unbelief. They did not, because of the divine delay, did not trust him any further. So irrespective of what they believed, open the tomb. He opened the tomb. Come forth, Lazarus. And Lazarus come forth hobbling with his grave clothes on him. You know why? Because he knew his father and his father told him what he should do and it didn't matter what happened around him. He was trustworthy to his father. He had a relationship with God. He knew what was going on and nothing in the circumstances was going to actually stop him. Everybody else didn't have that same sort of relationship and so they got confused and disillusioned by what was going on, by the divine delay. We're told in, in um, a passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 19 about the divine delay. People thought that the kingdom of God was going to happen straight away. And so he told them a parable just to let them know it's not going to happen straight away. There's going to be a divine delay. He says there's a man who's got many servants. He says he's got 10 servants and they come to him and he says, I am going to go to a faraway country to be crowned as king and then I will come back. So he's saying two things which are certain. I am going away and it'll be for a while that I'll go away, but I will come back. I'm going away and I'm going to become king. And when I do come back, I'm going to come back as the king. So there are certainties. He says, this is going to be some weight in the process. So he gets his servants and he gives them minus each. A minus is three, three months' wages. The number of servants, they all get the same amount of money and they're told to go and do business. Go and do business while I am away. What is he looking for? He's looking for a belief inside of them that produces a motivation in their lives, that gets them working for him, so that at the end when, they come, when he comes back, they have a product that they have done because of the steadfastness and the dependability of their life. He says, do you believe I'm coming back? 
Well, yeah, some didn't want him to come back and some didn't want him to be king. After a long delay, he comes back. And one guy comes up, he says, what have you done? And he says, I, I took you one and I made another ten. And he didn't say, you are the successful one. Man, you ought to have now a, a three-slide show where you can stand up and tell everybody how you did it, how you did the successful thing. He did not reward him with regard to his success. The number of things that he produced was not the issue. The fact that he was steadfast and faithful and dependable because he believed his master was coming back and he'd been given something from his master to invest. He believed that that core motivation that he was coming back motivated his life to do something and he had something to show for it. That was it. And for that he says, have ten cities. Well, he's the king now. He can say that. Faithful over Three months' wages, and you can rule over ten cities. Another one comes to him and says, I got five. I made another five. He did not reward him for the number that he got. He commended him for his faithfulness. The fact that he acted in accordance with his belief that the, the king would come back again and made a productive life while he waited. And then another one comes. There was 10. We don't hear about the others, but we hear about the last one. He says, I knew you were a hard man. So what did the man believe? He didn't believe that the Lord had given him generously three, week, three months' wages. No, he believed that he was a hard man. He just discounted the generosity. He says, I knew you, sow, you reap where you have not sowed. and It's terrible. You're just a meanie. So I put it in the ground, here it is, I didn't do anything with it. Because I don't believe that you really have my best interest at heart. Take it. He didn't know. He didn't know the Father at all. He didn't know the Lord at all. He didn't know what was going on. He just knew himself was fearful and he had a wrong concept. He acted according to his beliefs. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap where you did not sow. And his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a, man, a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why didn't you put my money in the bank and get interest for it? And we know that that man is rejected for his faithlessness. His lack of understanding and his lack of dependability. The master couldn't depend on it. They took the minus from that man and gave it to the guy with the ten. And then they make this sort of statement. He who has will get more and the one who doesn't have, even what he has will be taken away from him. It's like that. It doesn't seem fair, does it? If you got a whole heap, God's going to give you more. But if you don't have much, he's going to take what you got and he's going to give it to somebody who's got plenty. I don't want to tell you something. If you're faithful in the little things, you will be faithful in the much. If you are not dependable on the small things, even the small thing will be taken away from you and God will give it to somebody who's already doing a great work for God. It's the problem is that you just don't understand the belief of what you're believing is the thing that's driving your motivation. If you, it's only a small thing, I won't do it. It's only a small thing, it's sweeping the floors. It's only a small thing, it's bringing something. It's just a small thing. I'm, I'm not going to do it because it's a small thing. If you made me do a big thing, then I would be happy to do a big thing, but you're just giving me a small thing to do. 
And you don't do it because you belittle the small thing, but from a little acorn, a great oak grows. You don't believe that though, because you won't do the small thing. You won't embrace the small thing and, and do the small thing as though it's worth doing. Everybody around you is given the same amount of talents. Everybody around you is given the same amount of gifts. Some make it tenfold, others make it fivefold, and you can bury it in the ground if you like. It just tells me you don't believe that you've got an opportunity with God. God doesn't care about you. you just, all your excuses are not going to wash when you get there. What the servant believed about his master was the core of his motivation. That's why the servant did what he did. See, the servant believed different things. And how and what the servant did came out of that motivation that was driven by their belief in the master. God's word in the center of you will help you incarnate Christ. Your understanding of God's word and your submission to God's word will be reflected in all the things that you do. You'll be dependable, steadfast and faithful in your behavior if the word of God truly is within you. Let's pray. Father, you speak to us by your word. And today, Lord, we come to you and we know that you have looked deep into the core of our hearts and shown the motivation of our hearts. We can't hide from you, Holy Spirit. There's nowhere to run from you. You see us and you know us and you call us to put aside those things that are a waste of time and to spend time in that which is going to last forever. Father, we pray for this congregation right now, Lord, that you would touch them. Let their core motivation be driven by you. Let their hearts be so sold to you, Lord Jesus, that their whole life and their future is yours completely and totally, entirety, Father, completely yours. As you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if God has spoken to you this morning and he says, you need to put aside some stuff, you need to get some focus back into the word of God and start to drive into him and change the core of your life, I want you to put your hand up and I want you to respond to the Spirit of God and say, Lord, I need, I need to put more of that, more effort into you. I need to you need to change my heart. Change my heart, O oh God. Lord, you see those who've indicated with the raising of the hand. Lord, you love them, you care about them. Father, I, have, I, I pray for them that you would you'd, you'd just... Stir them up this week to press so, so fully into you, Lord Jesus. And then out of that life of, Lord, sustenance that comes from you would become a motivation to please you, Lord Jesus, and everything that you'd call them to do. Keep your hand upon them, Lord Jesus, we pray. In, every, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. God bless you.